Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy Podcast. I'm really excited to have Justin Turry on the show. Justin's the new head coach at St. John's um, and uh, really fired up to have you on, man. How you doing? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks again for having me on. No problem. All right. So how long you been? Uh, how long you been there now? Three months, two months? Jeez, yeah, about three, three in between three and four months. So everything's still fresh. Crazy. It's uh, it, it's you know, you're a you're a father, right? So you know what it's like to have kids for the first time. I think being a head coach is very similar. It's just coming at you. Uh, you can prepare all you want, but there's nothing like being a head coach. How's it feel? Uh, it's been as you said, a whirlwind. I figured, why not? Why not have you know have three kids under two, be a new dad and, and then get a new job and do it all at once, move halfway across the country. So um, no, we've been certainly drinking out of a fire hose, but I'm really lucky to have a lot of uh, mentors and, and people in the game that I can pick their brains quite a bit. So it's awesome. uh, it's been a lot of fun. And you're pretty close to home now. Yeah, not too far. Grew up uh, about 40 minutes away on the South Shore of Long Island and West Islip. So uh, Jamaica is, uh, is is not too far from home. Awesome. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue into how we I love to kick off these podcasts anyways, which is give us uh, a quick background on you, kind of where you came from and, and the people that meant a lot to you and the experiences that meant a lot to you along the way. Sure. Uh, well, I got to start um, with the game. It was definitely a part of the fabric of my family. My father, actually, him and, and my uncle Ralph were the first generation. Uh, they were uh, two of five uh, kids, three boys who all played lacrosse in West Islip. Um, my father, Bill, was uh, a player there, then a, a player at Penn State under Glenn Thiel. And then he was actually the defensive coordinator on our varsity team uh, with head coach Scott Craig, who ran the offense for uh, close to just about 35 years. And they were together the whole way through. So I was a football, basketball, lacrosse guy growing up and uh, was at all the practices above uh, at the high school and the middle school and everything since I was uh, basically in diapers. So uh, I was always around the game and uh, and certainly fell in love with it um, through those experiences. And from there, uh, after playing for West Isip High School, I was uh, lucky enough to be recruited by Coach Danowski down as he transitioned down to Duke from Hofstra down to Duke uh, and was a player there from 08 through 12. Got to uh, be a part of some really cool experiences and some great teams and uh, be mentored and coached by some of the greats to ever coach in our game and, and be around some of the best players to ever play. Uh, and uh, I was lucky there. And, and then from there, I actually took a little detour. Um, I think if I had decided to coach right out of school with an economics degree, my dad uh, might have uh, hit me across the face. <laughs> but uh, I went out to uh, the West Coast for the first time in my life uh, for close to two years and worked for uh, sports finance startup out there. Uh, I was still playing. I was lucky enough to get drafted by the Charlotte Hounds of the MLL. And then when I was out West played for the outlaws, um, which is that team was probably one of the best too. And we're talking about Jim Stagnetta, probably one of the best to never win an MLL championship. Um, and then, uh, but, but I, I knew kind of throughout that whole time, as I was trying that out, that coaching was always in the back of my mind. So I came back 
actually in the winter, right before uh, 2014, right around the holiday time. And the only, really the only things that were open were uh, a full-time position at Cornell and then a volunteer position at Providence. And uh, Providence at the time was my defensive uh, coordinator at Duke. Chris Gabrielli was going into his second year of a rebuild of a program. Uh, John Galloway was one of the assistants um, who I have competed against since the time we were in high school when he was at West Genesee and I was at West Islip. Um, and Brett Holm was the other assistant. And and right. I just went there. And um, that was after visiting and being on campus and being around them. That was that was a no brainer for my first stop as the volunteer there. And uh, end of that year, um, as we're finishing up, coming off a big end of season, went off of Nova. Uh, we're, we're about to hit the summer. And I'm back at West Islip Ward Melville, um, the playoff game. And I'm, I'm standing next to Sean Smith, who um, is a West Islip family. He coached um, with Coach Janowski at Hofstra. His yeah. sons grew up and, and played through uh, through the West Islip program under my dad. And uh, I'm just standing there kind of shooting it with him and talking about what's next. And um, lo and behold, he's he gets to my ear and says, well, well, I think Coach Albreach is on the other sideline. And uh, I know Mac DeAnge is actually stepping down and he's going to take over the prep school. I think he wants a, a Long Island guy and an offensive guy. So you want to go talk to him? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> and I uh, walked across the sideline, talked to Coach Alberici and had a great long conversation with him. Talked to him on the phone uh, the next day. I was up on campus two days after that and uh, was was so beyond fortunate that my first full-time stop in coaching was mm -hmm. under him. And uh, still is one of my greatest mentors to today. I don't know if I don't know if there's a better person in all of lacrosse than, than Joe Barici. Um And spent three years there with him and Kyle George Alice, and um, and had a great three years. Um, made two Patriot League championship games and uh, came up just short and and had that 17 year where we were maybe the only team in in history with two top five wins uh, to not make it to the NCAA tournament. Um, and then from there was at Harvard for one year um, under Chris Wojcik and then went out to uh, Michigan when that opportunity arose going into the uh, 2019 season, 1819. I was there for four years before uh, before coming out here uh, over the summer. Wow. What a journey. Um, let's let's take it back to uh, being a coach's son. You know, what was it like to be a coach's son and how did it impact you, um, you know, as a player and a coach sort of moving forward? What were the advantages of that? Well, I think the advantage of it, and and this also had everything to do with my dad being a phys ed teacher in the district, and and knowing and and having all of his friends be a lot of my other coaches throughout, and um, you just are exposed to so many things that you don't understand at the time, whether it's different team dynamics. I mean, I grew up idolizing all of the varsity lacrosse players and the varsity basketball players. I was a water boy for the football team when I was in third and fourth grade. I was a statistician for the hoops team and i remember watching danny green as a as a freshman at north bad before he transferred to saint mary's and you just you you see and observe all these things and you watch all these guys be successful and you're around all these different team environments and um and it rubs off on you whether you understand it uh in the end or not and and you just fall in love with with being around that and and the side of the sport of building a team of building a successful and a cohesive team and um, and everything that goes into it and how much you understand how much time really goes into it. I think that's yeah. the other piece too. So I was lucky to be around a really successful football program in West Islip, a really successful lacrosse program and um, 
was able to kind of help take it over at the top um, throughout my time in high school when that time came. But you just you you cherish practices, you cherish the days being out in the field. And listen, I always had a ball in my hand, a stick in my hand, and um, I was playing wall ball. I was shooting around with the varsity guys, and and it was the coolest thing ever. And it made me really want to do it more. So you won? Did you win two state championships? I did. Our first two in a, in school history, and in, in my junior senior year, oh six, oh seven, wow. uh, both over West Genesee. Uh, I don't let John forget it, but then he also uh, trounced us pretty good in the 09 NCAA tournament. And he has nothing <laughs> <out> either. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty uh, pretty awesome to be able to share a, a championship or two with your dad, too. That's really special. That's it was cool. It was cool. And uh, and he was – I could tell you that – listen, he's, he's a coach, and, and being a coach's son may not always be easy uh, at every turn. Thankfully, he was on the defensive side, and I was on the offensive side in high school. <laughs> But uh, I'm also looking back at it really appreciative where he didn't coach our little league. He let my uncle and a couple of my buddies, friends coach our teams. He was always there and he'd be there because he was the varsity coach and liked to be around all the teams in the PAL. Yeah. But um, that I think looking back, that meant a lot to and, and that I think took a lot for him too to be able to take that step back. Um, but it made those high school years really special. Yeah, cool. And then off to Duke where you got to win another championship. That's pretty awesome. Two high school champ state championships and a national championship. Um, talk about about that experience and what it was like to play for Coach Donowski and Coach Caputo and who was the other assistant at the time? And Chris Gabrielli was uh, yeah, so, right, yeah. yeah I, I was really lucky in the fact that my coaching staff, my full time staff, was consistent through. And I actually had five years my freshman year. I had a medical redshirt. I broke my foot in the fall. Um, which really stunk at the time, but ended up working out really, really well, uh, being able to stay an extra year um, and get a master's degree. Um, but it, it, Coach Janowski, I would say, and what I take from him now as a coach, um, number one, just, I mean, he's a, he's a guidance counselor by nature, and that's kind of how he approaches the job. Not only, I mean, he's a tremendous lacrosse coach. He understands the game at a really, really deep level at every facet of the game. But he was um, where I thought he was just different than everybody else. He understood how to communicate and, and get the best out of everybody in a different, unique way. And every team in a different, unique way. Um, and, and he was just so good at always keeping the big picture in the long game in mind. And I think as coaches, I know I personally, I, I get really caught up in and we can all get really caught up in what's immediately right in front of us and the next game and um and he he just was so good about always taking a step back and always knowing what a team needed or what a group of, of young men needed um, for for the long run, for the future, um, and always keeping that in mind. Um, and then Coach Caputo and Coach Gabriele's assistants, I mean, Coach Caputo and I had as close as a relationship as you could have with player and coach, and we still do. Uh, I talked to him, I want to say, pretty weekly, and I just saw him over the weekend, and um, we're either talking about recruiting or bouncing ideas off each other, offense, defense. I mean, he's um, he's as blue collar as it gets, and he is um, as as great of a lacrosse coach. Uh, really, any sport coaches I've ever been around. He's yeah. coached offense, defense at the highest level. Um, he could probably go out and coach basketball today and be great at it at the college level. That's just um, his level of understanding, and and more so, he's just. 
an unbelievably caring person. Yeah. Um, and if you're, when you're around him, you certainly, you know, and feel that too. Yeah. He is a great dude. Um, okay. So then you uh, moved on and got a chance to co- coach for Gabs. Yep. Um, after having been coached by him. Um, so that, what was that experience as a, as a volunteer assistant at Providence, which by the way, my son is currently a volunteer assistant at Providence. I, I, I didn't know that. I know under coach Benson. Well, I'm going to have to run up against them in league this year. So right. things will get interesting. Um, it, it, much like now I was drinking from fire hose. I had honestly, and as much as you think, you know, about what coaching is, you have no idea everything that goes on on the other side as, as coach do used to say the dark side, um, when you're a player versus being a coach, but um, I loved every bit of it. And uh, obviously Brett home now was at, at Brown and doing a tremendous job there. John Galloway, who's done what he's done at Jacksonville and, um, and coach Gasby at Providence for over a decade. I, I learned so many things. John and I lived together in his apartment in Providence. Um, and it was, it was just an, an overall learning experience on how to be a coach on, um, on how to be really detailed on, uh, on, on coaching everything. Uh, so it was, it was really cool. I started to get into the face off. I worked primarily with Brett home on that side of the ball, but um, kind of just helped out and added value wherever I could. Yeah. Got it. And so then um, coach a uh, really is one of the best guys ever. Um, tell me a little bit about what you learned from him. Uh, I think, and I think I'm a pretty organized person, but um he may be one of the most organized and I would say disciplined people I've oh, yes. ever been around. So if you know Coach A, you know he's he's got a workout streak that right now I think it's in like, well, like what what number is it? He'll be like Oh uh, yeah, and I don't even know anymore. But it's like and, four thousand uh, or something. Oh, it's 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 crazy. And I and I say that as a young dad right now and I don't know if I've worked out in the past three months. So one one day I'll have to get there. And I don't think I will never come close to history, but um you you just knew what you were gonna get and, and the players did every single day. And I think that's something about leadership that I learned from him is it's you just have to be authentically you um every second of every day and and really just and talk about a person of integrity. You you know what you're gonna get from Coach A no matter what, no matter the situation no matter the interaction um, and, and that coupled with just being an unbelievably caring person and truly caring about every single player in that program past present. Um, it was, it was really, really cool to see and about as, as good as a first experience I could have. And and I'm, I'm lucky to still be able to call them up at any point and bounce things off of them. We actually went up as a staff a couple of weeks ago and just clinic with them for the day and, and watched their practice nice. and uh, coming off of watching our practice for a month where we're like stopping and teaching and installing and everything's brand new. And you go up and watch theirs. You're like, and I like, it had been a couple of years. So I forgot exactly what it was like, but man, it's still a machine. Um, and it's just impressive. Um, so he's, um, he was as, as great as I could have asked for as a, as a first mentor. And you coach the offense up there. So I coached with Kyle George Alice. Yeah. So Kyle was running the offense. Um, I actually coached the faceoff unit and, and first time I did that, um, Full time. Uh, it was cool to dive into something new. I was I was a wing player in college, so I had an appreciation for the three man game. But yeah. to really dive into actual face off play, I was lucky to inherit Alex Daly, who was a returning All Patriot League player going into fifteen, and uh, and he actually ended up getting hurt late in that year. And, and Dan Graber, who was a um, was his backup, started to really come on, and uh, then kind of going into the next year, we had a two headed monster, and and Danny Graber ended up 
um, by the time, by the time I had left was, a uh, um, was an offensive weapon. I think he had close to 20 points his senior year as a face-off specialist was 65% plus. Um, nice. so I did that. I coached a lot of the skill work with Kyle on the offensive side of the ball. He coordinated, um, the actual game planning in the system. And then I did a lot of the shooting, uh, technical stuff, uh, passing everything. Yeah. Yeah. So going to Michigan, or then, then it was Harvard. Harvard for one year with Woj, and then Michigan. Yep, yep. I rem- and I remember you came out and stopped with us that fall uh, when I was at Harvard with Woj, and mm-hmm. and that was my first true coordinator experience. Um, and and I was lucky to coach a player caliber, Morgan Cheek, and I had a senior laden group with Joe Lang and Carney Mann and, yeah, and some other good players, uh, and supplemented by some great young players. But that was uh, that was a whole nother learning experience and how to call a game and. Um, how to adjust throughout and um, how to plan throughout a week. So it was, uh, that was really cool. And I think, um, I think set me up pretty well to uh, be ready to take a jump into a conference like the big 10 and, and be yeah. a coordinator level. Yeah. So the last time I saw you, you were uh, at, at Michigan in 2019 when I took my Epic RV trip. Yep. Michigan was <laughs> the second stop on that trip. And uh, we were in the middle of a polar vortex in the back. And I was in the back of an RV for 12 days. It was crazy. But um, thankfully we had thankfully we had an indoor facility where we yes, could go. Thank God we actually didn't have to leave the indoor facility to go anywhere. You could like literally go in the tunnels, you know, pretty much yeah. around campus. But I was just so blown away by the organization that JP had going on there and that he, uh, I mean, sorry, that coach Conry had going on there and, um, and the way that you guys had plugged into these resources. I mean, what an experience in itself that had to have been. It was. And, and uh, at a big 10 school where, uh, where football is King, um, that certainly is the focal point, but everybody else feels it. And we felt it. Um, just through really every resource you could you could want, and I think the biggest challenge was to make sure, hey, we we have all these things. Um, let's make sure we utilize what we have and utilize it the right way. So right. I know we were we were sitting there in practice planning, and we had our our drill bank up there, and and we had the number of the player load for minute minute for um, that we get through the catapult system to try to best plan our practices and keep bodies fresh and um, and. Uh, just using that the right way um though that was you're you're fortunate a place like that to have everything you could ask for and all the toys you could ask for um and i think the big challenge was making sure number one that you we utilize it the right way but also that the players understand why we're using all these things and that they yeah. utilize it too how about the uh the analytics stuff that you guys are doing as far as the you know your all the didn't you guys have like a full like a full time analytics staff or something that was like working on your stats? So we did. We had a, we had actually a volunteer um, that was over in the um, kind of data science um, school and was coming over to help us. And it was kind of dual fold around some of the the sports science stuff with with that with using the catapult units, uh, measuring speed, measuring player load, trying to be really smart as we kind of planned out our practices and planned out our weeks. And then um, I tried to use them a little bit more and, and I, I wasn't able to get probably as far as I would have liked into actually um, using them on the lacrosse side of things and trying to, and I know I saw an article last year inside lacrosse of, of Coach Tillman using kind of someone similar at Maryland for, for a little bit of that, but um, we would create shot charts. I would try to stat every game and break it down 
um, and not get super nitty gritty and detailed, but enough where our guys can see some some output and, and see some some usable things for them to improve. What were on. those? What were those usable things? The the biggest piece I would say was the shot chart, and I would show kind of where your shots are coming from, um, how much on the move, how not, um, were were they assisted, uh, were they coming off of, of a dodge, and um, and I think our guys I got it and understood it. Um, I think if I was able to, with a little bit more time and and probably more staff, I would say they'd be a little bit more effective. Um, but I, I still think they got something out of it. Um, and I would show it to them usually, usually post game. Um, and when they would come in for film. So you're the, uh, you're the offensive coordinator. This is your second opportunity, your second season as an offensive coordinator in your first season at Michigan. Um, what? how did you grow in that, um, position over the four years that you were there? I think one thing I really learned throughout, and it's, I mean, in the culture of the Big Ten, you got you got no choice but to be on your game every week and, and certainly throughout the course of the year. Um, and I think learning how to uh, give the players more and more freedom and not be so on top of them in the moment for every decision, every everything that they do, every read that they make, um, and really trying to given the tools to do that throughout practice and creating better ways to do that throughout practice, um, simulating game situations, doing a little bit more live work um, versus, and I came from, I came from a schooling and at Duke, we were, it was a lot of um, individual shooting and repetition, repetition, repetition. And there was a, a big place for that, but there's, there's also a big place for, Hey, let's, let's take this three on three or four on four or maybe do a slide advantage drill where now you're making a three on two read in the looks of our offense versus whatever a defense might do and to just read and react and, and make plays off of it. Um, so I'd say we, we definitely started to over my four years gravitate more towards that and use our individual and our, and our skill time more towards that just to teach the decision-making element of the game. Um, and, and that's something I know now we're, we're trying to play it at St. John's. We're trying to play at a pretty, I would say, quote unquote, fast pace. But fast for me is, and for us and our staff, is just being able to make decisions at a fast pace mm. and um, and everybody being on the same page with that. Um, so I think ways to ways to teach that, ways to keep your offense multiple um, versus these these coaches on the defensive end that, that were in the Big Ten, certainly now that we'll face in the Big East that are so great at scouting and great at stopping what you do well, uh, being able to, to morph and uh, make a decision that, that you don't normally make under um, under duress, a, a situation of maybe some duress. Yeah, there are some great defense coordinators in, in, in the Big Ten or all over the country, really. And it's, it's, it, it's something that makes me think of this concept of on the defensive side, things are based on the principles because, yes, you can scout, but you don't really know what they're going to do. So, therefore, you can't necessarily script. You have to be able to react to what the, your opponent's doing. And, of course, you know, a lot of people do a lot of the same things. So, you can you can prepare probably for 80, even 90% of what you're going to see. Um, and then you sort of go from there. But but still, it's 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 the fundamentals are more are more concepts. Mm-hmm. All pressure. Help. Um, you know, uh, 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 the way you approach 
by not getting yourself beat easily. All these things are like, you know, there's techniques involved, but there are kind of like different ways to skin that cat too. Offensively, it sounds like you kind of were moving in that in almost a similar direction. I kind of had those same thoughts like, man, why is it my defense always just kind of ready to play in my offense? Not, not as much. And I, and I think it has to do with the fact that the defense is just kind of reacting to things and they're b- built on principles and the offense has to execute A, B, C, D, E, F. And if it gets th- mixed up, you're not really reading as much. Um, and so it sounds like at Michigan and into St. John's, you're starting to give put kids in situations where the principles of great shots or smart feeds or, you know, two man game or attacking from the wings and ball movement um, allow allow for a little bit less scoutability. Yes, um, absolutely. And that's we want to be really I would say we want to be a, a really disciplined team, but disciplined within a really free-flowing framework that when you got when you got the ball you're in control when you're off ball you have option a b c d you can shallow you can drift you can pick you can pass and pick which we call slam um when you're off ball um you're either in or you're out you're on the perimeter you're inside you can only be there for a set period of time and when in doubt balance the field it's it's things like that where i think um I don't know. I don't want to say I'm kind of controlling by nature, but more detailed by nature yeah. with that uh, trying to be detailed in, Hey, we're, we want to take a shot from this area of the field. Um, hey, your range is 10, your range is 14. And, and this is why, and when you're on the move, you generally want to shoot from this stick angle. And, and when you are under pressure, you need to separate with your feet first in order to create a passing lane to exchange the ball. Detailed in those um, areas, but then allowing kind of that detail and that discipline to allow you to play really free and make all the the reads and decisions that present themselves throughout the course of a possession, throughout the course of a game. Yeah, and that that applies to the individual skill and to the offense. In other words, there's different solutions. Uh, you, you, there's not one way to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like we'll, we'll teach behind the back passing and we'll teach shoveling for our defensemen, but it's understanding um, when you're, when you're five yards dead center of the net in front, that's not the time to throw behind the back. <laughs> you got plenty of angle and plenty of goal to see, um, just see the goalie and shoot it by him. But when you're decreasing your angle and your stick head can help increase it and see more of the goal, that's the time to use it. Um, and the same thing for all those skills for a twister finish for, um, a roll back versus a pull pass across your body for a pick versus a slip versus a shallow cut. Uh, it, and and that's where we, we use the film room quite a bit to kind of just in review, talk through decision-making, hear their perspective and also say, okay, well, I mean, think about it this way as well. So how much do you guys watch film? Quite a bit, quite a bit. Uh, everything is new for us right now. So really in every area of the game, uh, we just finished our 20 hour period um, this past week uh, with with the scrimmage against Navy and Penn over the weekend. But during that 20 hours, I would say we were watching, if we're practicing Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, at least three of those days, we're watching probably 20, 20 to 25 minutes worth of film on on one facet of the game. Um, and, and in the spring, we'll be pretty similar. We'll, we'll keep it short. Um, I really believe and over my time coaching and just knowing who, uh, our young men are um, everything is, is a mile in a minute and their brains work that way. So yeah. we try to be really prepared with our cuts, try to keep it short and efficient and succinct. So they're not thinking about a million things. Um, I mean, we could easily probably make an hour and a half worth of cuts oh, yeah. on pretty much 
two to three practices in a week. Um, but that's it, our job to be efficient, make sure they're hearing the things that are most important all the time. But we watch quite a bit. Yeah, it's amazing um, what film could do to, to for the first time, the players start really digging in. They they actually learn what happened. Yeah, <laughs> the truth is, what, I, I, I'll listen. what you think yeah. happened. I mean, even for the coach, you, nobody really knows until you watch it. Yeah, and I, and as a player, I can't say that, and, and I don't just don't know if it was as in vogue on the offensive side of the ball when when I was in school, and that's the early two thousands. I probably didn't watch as much film as I should have or could have, um, and it's teaching these guys the value of why the film is important and the important piece of the learning process uh, and also helping them understand that you don't need to watch yourself to get the points that we're talking about, the skill of watching other people, of watching a PLL game, of watching another college game, of watching a player that you think your game might be similar to um, and watching your teammates, certainly when we're practicing. So trying to help them understand how to do that and, and teaching them how to do that. Yeah. And teach them how to watch film. Yeah. How, yes. how, how do you, how do you go about watching film? <clears throat> um, so I will generally watch uh, really everything, everything competitive from our practices. Uh, I try to go through it the first time um, with a, with a broader stroke and not focus so much individually as I will look at the bigger picture spacing and decision-making uh, it, it's, it is even even as a coach now, and you watch scout film, it's tougher to not focus on the ball at all the time. But really, that's where ninety percent of your energy should be focused on not watching the ball. Um, so I'll watch really watch it there from the first time, and then uh, the second time, if I'm watching a six on six segment, I'll, I'll try to watch it more individually uh, for certain players and, and make individual cuts there. Um, that the we use score break and, and it makes it really easy to clip a cut for a player and immediately send it to them or put a little playlist together um and, and categorize all the clips. So uh watching the watching the off ball and, and even that's something I would say in game as a coordinator is probably even tougher. Um but uh but learning to do that uh really really helps you develop and helps you kind of play the game within the game as you go throughout the course of one. The key uh, to me, it seems like the biggest key to watching film is the pause and rewind button. <laughs> uh, if having it downloaded on your iPad so you can scrub back and forth yeah, is better. Yeah, oh, it's the sure. best thing in the world. So much better. I totally agree. And that's, I mean, that's how you watch film, you know, for, for the athletes out there. You can't watch it and not put it back because, you know, you, you, you said it, like you got to watch the off ball, but you need to see the ball too. And you, get, and you can't see both at the same time um yeah. as clearly as you can if you sort of like slow it down rewind it pause it um yeah. the clips that you said you send through score break to your athletes i was wondering about that when you're talking about film sessions because sometimes the easiest way is just to send people something with a little caption you kind of get them right where they're at too does that go through text or does it go through a different message system or how does that work? yeah it goes so it, it um we get a push notification through the app it goes right to their phone um and, and we have all of our guys have the app and we have the push notifications enabled so it could be six o'clock at night and you're just finishing up dinner. And one of the coaches is watching, watching film from practice. And it's, it's just a single clip. It's, Hey, you got a notification. Look at the clip. There is a little either uh, notification or chat. And I think the best part about it and what we've, we've started to really um, push our players to do for them to be really efficient. And for us to see how they watch film is you can actually go in and create clips yourself. So create a couple clips, come up to the office, just shoot us a text when you're coming up and let's watch them or shoot us a playlist with a couple comments on each each clip and if it's two clips i can just chat right back and, and text them back and send, send yeah. uh, 
out of too. So I love um, that kind of engagement too, because these athletes, they do have a lot going on and it's like, it's really hard to sit there and be, you know, for a 20 minute film session, you're only looking at like four or five clips anyways, because it takes you a while to talk about them. And then, yeah. you know, for some of the guys, it's, it's not even applicable. And whereas if you sort of individually send stuff out with captions and you just catch them for that five minutes and you just do that a few times a day, it's a good way to break it up. Um, that's really cool. And then um, I want to hear about the in-game um, film. So at Michigan, did you guys use the the iPads and 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 really study what was going on in game? We did, we did. We use a, we have a system called DV Sport, and actually, um, and and here at St. John's, we'll have a score break has a has a system. They have a unit um, where it kind of creates a local hotspot, and and you can get that immediately up to your iPad as it's being cut. Um, that's something I think I got better with over the course of of four years. Um, so it's certainly it's one of those things with technology, right? The first time it doesn't work in a game, you're like, oh, I'm done with it for the rest of the game. But <laughs> so um, we we got we got pretty good with the system where uh, it was really reliable and uh, and more than anything, I think post possession and you try not to bog players down with too much detail. But early in the game, well, where you're you're probably expecting one thing off scout or expecting them to defend. Uh, either a picking situation or uh, a dodge in a certain area or a certain player this certain way. If it's a little bit different, that's a nice, it's a nice piece either at a timeout or even like midfielders coming off on the sideline. Hey, they're not showing as much from the inside. It's like a late adjacent show. So you can hold on to your dodge a little bit longer, or um, they're really stepping out aggressively on this pick uh, more so than we thought. Think about, think about slipping or thinking about ghosting that one the next time. So it's, it's it's can be really helpful and effective when used the right way. How big of an advantage is it? I mean, is it worth having it? Uh, in my eyes, it was as I started to you got to you definitely have to get a level and gain a level of comfortability with it. Um, but it, it certainly is, I think, an advantage just over the course of the game um, in big picture. And then also certainly specialties, um, extra man, man down. Yeah, um, you, you can see some things if you have a couple of bread and butter plays and everything everything in the end by the middle of the year everything scouted so the littlest advantage can go uh, mm -hmm. a long way um, so it's definitely worth it for sure well just think about watching a game from ground level you just can't see if people are really sliding you just don't know are they sliding are they not sliding they're not sliding to us and then you find out yeah they were sliding to us but 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 when you're up when you're up up top you can see it yeah. you know like in football the in the press box you can see everything um which is you know an interesting concept of putting somebody up there and what you're really doing is, you know, getting that viewpoint from the sideline. Um, my question is how much does it like take you away from being present in a leader on the sideline? If you're sort of on your iPad a lot, I feel like it's uh, it may not really be a problem at all, but it, it kind of looks like when you look at coaches, a lot of times they're sort of on their iPad the whole time and they're not necessarily watching a game or interacting. Yeah. I think that's when it's on, it's on either myself or, or whatever coach is using it to make sure you're using it the right way. Yeah. Um, when you're a coordinator, it's a little bit easier because the ball is on the other half and actually helps you from maybe not watching that as much, which sometimes be a good thing. Um, certainly the balance of being a head coach and using it is going to be a little bit different, but if there's either a certain situation or something in the right clear and, and I got to figure out exactly how we'll do this, but it could be even, um, I know sometimes I would I would give the iPad to uh, one of our injured players, especially if it's one of our one of our guys who really knows what we're doing. Mm. And if I saw somebody, hey, 
hey, could you bring that clip up for me during the next timeout or the next dead ball? Um, so there is definitely a balance to be played because you want to be, you want to be able to constantly interact with your guys, read your players and and have a constant communication throughout the course of a game. Yeah. Um, cool. Switching gears. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you're, you're starting, you're starting, uh, your tenure. How do you do that? Um, how do you even get started with that? How do you create the, the kind of culture with the values that you, that matter most to you? Yeah, I was, well, I would say I'm, I'm really lucky in the fact that we inherited a great group of young men. And I mean, great. Um, Coach Miller did a tremendous job in both, both recruiting and, and, uh, and developing really great people. Uh, these guys um, do a great job in the classroom. They do a great job off the field and, and they already, they have a strong core values that they live by. And I think the challenge was to um, bring in what we believe are values of really successful teams, organizations, people, and also hear them out on, Hey, this is, this is what we think at St. John's make really successful um, Johnny's. And, and I think it's, it's the merging of those two. And we're still in the process of that. And I think being collaborative in that effort really number one, I think enhances the buy-in of the group. Um, they're heard and they understand they're being heard. And, um, and I also think we have, uh, these kids are as smart as I've ever been around at every level and every stop that I've been. I mean, some of the things they say and uh, how emotionally intelligent some of them are, I think back to what I was like in college, I was like, I never would have even thought of that or said that. Um, so I think that p- part of it is that. Um, and then I also keep in our staff, we both both my brother Kyle and Christian Clipstein and, and Quinn O'Reilly, we, we remind ourselves that uh, even the fifth year and sixth year graduate students are all freshmen. So everything is brand new to them. Everything we tell them to do in practice is brand new. Every drill is brand new. Certainly every concept we're putting in all over the field is brand new. So just exercising some patience and understanding that um, what we accomplish on the lacrosse field this fall, this fall may be a little bit secondary to establish, establishing a foundation of, uh, of culture, of who we're going to be, um, how we're going to play and act, and, and who we're going to be as a group. Yeah, very cool. Um, switch gears again. What, uh, what would you say your offensive philosophy is? Uh, we're going to be a full field team first. Uh, I would say my offensive philosophy and, and kind of, we define uh, quote unquote fast play and, and, and higher tempo play as constantly putting pressure on the defense from the moment we get the ball. And, and that's, that's the same thing for us defensively, um, we, we look at offenses starting with the, when the goalie makes a save or when we get the dead ball of a dead ball turnover or a live ball turnover, everybody on the field, it's a 10 man offensive unit. Um, everyone's a player, same thing all defensively off of um, either a shot, save a turnover, a face off loss. Everybody on the field is a defender. So every one of our units is a 10 man unit. And, um, and we want to play that way. We want to try to uh, kind of dictate the tempo and not allow an opposing team to uh, relax. Um, so offensively for us, we spent the first week in the full field. Um, we, we worked on our our clearing game, our full field transition game, our subbing pattern that eventually worked into our half field set um, and how that all flows. And uh, I'm actually having um, Coach Terry, my brother Kyle, who is is uh, running our defense with uh, Coach Clip, um, is kind of, is head man in the full field offense 
and, and merging a lot of kind of what we've done at Michigan, what I've done throughout my career with what they did at Hobart um, to create, I think, a really, really cool style of play. And and then that should and the rules that you play in the full field should mirror pretty closely to how we're going to play in the half field um, and, and just make sure all those phases flow together pretty seamlessly and um, give every guy that's on the field the tools to, to make the plays that he sees. So you guys are trying to play full field across with an emphasis on the whole thing, and then you'll refine the parts as you go, but you're sort of starting with the whole. Yeah, exactly. And and we definitely, the last last probably two, two plus weeks of fall, we spent a lot more time in the half field. Um, and I'm sure as we get into the spring with, with how much time we spent in the full field, we'll start to hone in our focus a little bit more in the half field and, and develop ourselves more. But uh, we were, a lot less concerned this fall about the what that we put in um, a lot more concerned about um, how we're going to play in every phase and understanding our guys, uh, un making sure our guys understood the why of what we're going to uh, do in every phase as well. So that we'll, we'll get plenty into the nitty gritty and the detail and, and we'll spend a lot of time in, in the half field at this level. Um, you're going to have to grind out and score some goals in the half field. And I got to, stare across a lot of great coordinators and maybe the two best defensive coordinators that have ever coached this game on the opposite sideline in our conference. So we're going to have to be great in, in every phase. Um, but that's, that's definitely where we started and then we'll work our way back from there. How much would you guys scrimmage? Like how much full field stuff were you doing to, to be able to, you know, really, really do it the way you want to do it in a full field ma manner this way? Yeah, I would say, after the first two weeks, when we felt comfortable, we had kind of every, at least the baseline in every phase of riding, of clearing, of facing off, of subbing, and and at least an offense, defense in. We were, if we're practicing uh, four days a week with with a scrimmage, we did a red white, and then we had our scrimmage. We kind of had an informal red white, a formal red white, and then our fall scrimmage at the end of it. Uh, we were probably there was a scrimmage element, and I would say three of those four practice days. And sometimes it was a pure 15, 20 minute scrimmage segment. Sometimes it was um, a little bit more of kind of a full field scramble E segment where there's a three second roll on the ball and um, there's some other uh, just parameters around it. Um, sometimes it was a ride clear or face off focus scrimmage where it'd be a little bit more stopped, but we would allow the play to continue. Um, so whatever we needed, uh, we, we tried to get throughout the week, but we did still want to do a decent amount of playing. I think number one, to instill that, but number two, also to, to figure out who we were and who our guys were and, and right. figure out where we needed the, the most work and to coach them the most. You mentioned parameters. It's a really interesting word. So you use various parameters or rules constraints to kind of create environments that your players have to adapt to. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and give us some good examples of like what you like to do as far as, uh, parameters maybe on both sides of the ball maybe even in the full field stuff yeah and, and i would say and i know that's something that i've heard quite a bit um and listened to a lot of your podcasts over the past year plus um and, and I, I know i played against mikey thompson it's been incredible to see what he's done at cnu yeah um, and and the stuff that they've been doing and then uh with coach mccormick on the women's side at hopkins we were actually on the same long island empire team and, no way really you know, yeah, way back there, Tim. It was one of our goalies. Nice. That, that oh, uh, that oh, was it oh six Empire team that summer was that was a special one. Um, 
but to see what he's been doing on the Who women's side. Who else was side. on that team, by the way? I, I'm sure I went to those games. Oh, yeah. Adam Gittleman, uh, Ryan Flanagan, Zach Howell, Ryan Young, uh, Ramel Shamel Bratton, um, oh, Zach yeah. Brenneman, uh, Dean Gibbons. It was weird. It was a squad. It was a rank off field. Yeah, it was. Uh, we had some fun. We'll say that. <laughs> we had some fun. Um, but whether it's kind of seconds, constraints, scoring off an assist, uh, more points for assisted goals. Uh, we'll build that into scrimmage segments, but then also four on four segments. And um, whether that's full field or half field and three on three segments where you're only allowed either in a certain half of the field or a certain area. So we'll, we'll sometimes constrain areas of the field. We'll sometimes constrain the actions. Um, and I don't think we do as much of it as some of the names that I've mentioned previously, but we're trying to do more and more of it because it's, um, it forces you to look for specific things that are all elements of, of kind of how we want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can create whatever constraint you want to get whatever result you want. Um, and and then I think if you do that more and more, things start to become habitual. Uh, uh, and that's that's a big proce- part of the process of what we're doing now is um, these guys were certainly coached um, away prior to us. And we need to break some habits and, and make the things that we're teaching them habitual. Right. Yeah. So those constraints put the kids in these environments where the skills emerge. And the yeah. fun part for you is to figure out, you know, what what constraints will create, you know, the the adaptation that you want. And that's what the practice design becomes all about. So that's and small and small my whistle when I need to swallow my whistle, too. It's good. It's good. Uh, it's good therapy, I think, for all coaches. <laughs> no doubt, man, myself included. Um, yeah. So how about, what about a two man game? How much two man game do you think guys will play? Um, we'll do quite a bit. Um, I would say generally, uh, and we've done quite a bit my time in Michigan, we did a lot off the end line and, and I, I, I think two man game is really effective. Number one, by taking one defender out of the help. And I know you talk about this quite a bit, yeah. but making that off ball game, uh, four on four and then a four on three when you draw an extra person to the two versus a five on five, which becomes a five on four when you draw a slide with a single dodge. Um, but teaching, teaching guys all the different reads and reactions. And, and I think the biggest thing when you're not dealing with guys that are savvy or, or have experience in the box or experience um, playing a lot of it is two man game doesn't mean pick two man game means just bring your man to the ball and, um, make a read on how they're defending it and on the situation on ball, the situation with who's covering you and, um, and try to, I, I know you talk about creating advantages, just try to create an advantage, whether it's the guy with the ball or the guy without the ball. Um, and I think we'll, we'll, we try to do a lot of that also within the flow of the offense and teaching guys when, when it might make sense to um, set a pick uh, at goal line extended or set an up pick as the ball swings from side to side um, to try to pick up the on-ball defender, but to take away defensive help. So we'll do we'll do quite a bit throughout. And then I think an area where where I know we we were trying to focus on last year in Michigan, and we'll continue to focus on is um, with a lot of the movement with us off-ball offensively and guys constantly changing in and out of the crease. It's going into and cutting with a purpose. And moving to the perimeter with a purpose. And a lot of times that means looking to get a teammate open. And how can you utilize a screen, which, I mean, that's just what we call an off-ball two-man game, a screen. How can you utilize a screen 
or a seal or something to uh again create that off ball advantage create create an opening create a gap that you can attack or a lane to cut through so how much off ball two man actions you're screening are you getting versus on ball um i would say probably a little bit more off ball than on ball um we should generally have uh, if we have two guys and if we have two guys on the inside and we'll kind of constantly flow between having one and two in there, uh, we have two in the inside. We, we always want them to try to be working off each other at some point. Uh, spacing isn't always perfect. And sometimes it's better to be separated, but if you're working to become, become an in work in there and, and don't always cut, cut for yourself, cut and cut and find someone or find a defender um, that you can uh, influence and, and then work for yourself. Um, so there's a, there's a lot that happens throughout the possession. Um, I don't know if I've necessarily quantified it yet, but yeah. if we're playing the way we want to, it should be, should be a lot. It's, it seems like that's kind of the most untapped part of offense is, is off ball two man actions. Yeah. Um, yeah. For so Absolutely. long, we've just sort of spread everybody out and just, you know, gotten good spacing yeah. and exchanged. Uh, instead of actually getting open like they do in box across. So it's going to be exciting. I mean, I, I saw more of it in the, in the PLL this year. There was like, there's a fair amount of like really slick little off ball actions. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, they're kind of exciting. I mean, Mumbo has been around for forever, but mm. I think that kind of stuff can happen actually like out of flow. You don't have to call it out. You know, it's just, it's kind yeah. of there. They yeah, say, you, can, you, can feel the yeah. yeah, you could seal away a second slide and create a wide open cut lane for somebody on the backside. Um, I think that's one thing that's been really cool is just to see more and more kids in the U.S. play box. I think that's really helps things because I would say just uh, across every position, the skill level in the recruiting landscape is, a, is as high as it's ever been. Um, and it's just helping them. It's a great cross training sport, and it's just becoming more prevalent. And so, certainly in the PL, you see what the Chaos did, and they do it at a really, really high level because that's their identity and who they are. But you do see other teams adopting the same things too, and, and having a lot of success with it. What um, what do you think is the hardest part about teaching two man game, or what 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 becomes the biggest challenge? Of of using two man game in terms of like cr actually creating advantages. What 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 do you, what's the hardest part? Because sometimes it seems like it's great, and other times it's like, man, I just feel like we're jamming ourselves up. So how do you look at that? Uh, I think the hardest part in teaching it it's not anything technical about how to set a proper pick or how to how to angle your body, um, the location. Uh, it's it's really in reading the situation of. Number one, where's the defender who's covering the ball? Um, I can't tell you how many times we'll just – I'll run a tape back and um, and the guy with the ball approaching a pick or a two-man has made a great initial move and the picker just stays planted there. It's like, well, well, no, he, he just dodged this guy. He created the advantage that he needed with the ball. All you're doing is bring a slide to the ball. So get out, slip, find space. Um and it's reading that short, short situation versus a, a big little versus a little big and um, trying to help them understand, all right, this is probably what the defense is thinking in the situation. So given that, how can you help yourself and help the ball carrier um, and the two man? Um, I mean, what hand is he? Where is he trying to get to? How can you help him get there? Um, so I think it's, 
it's that part of it. Um, it's not necessarily the skill of actually setting a pick, the skill of slipping and catching the ball over your shoulder, the skill of diving to the crease. And um, I think it's the skill of understanding the situation and just finding the best solution given the situation. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, obviously you got to read it because if they go over, there's one solution. If they go under, there's another. If they stack and whack, there's another. If they switch, there's another. But I, I think the other biggest key on top of what you said, which is reading the coverages, is deception. Mm. Because if, if it's predictable, the defense will probably play pretty well, even if you know what they're doing. Yeah. If you're predictable, yeah. they will just come out and push over you. Um, if you're if their switches or 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 hedge guys are in perfect position and aren't really moving and have time to process, um, you know, just 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 the 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 advantage that the Dodger has from the outset of of just not being predictable, you know, refusing picks, faking yeah. refusals, using hesitations and slowing down on your dodges is all. You know, this thing, when you watch people just go really hard athlete on athlete, the defenseman will push himself right over and meet you on the other side. And and it's like, you just don't come out. I mean, you gain the advantage of pulling someone else out of the defense. So that's still there. You know, you can swing it. Um, so, yeah, that's what, what I was curious what your thoughts were on the deception piece. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's another thing that um, guys that are more experienced. And, and that's the other reason I, I love to recruit basketball players, too. Yeah. because they get that piece of it more. And, and I mean, box across is basketball with a stick and, and they're pretty interchangeable. And, and I'm a hoops guy by nature, as much as I love football as well, but um, that is the best transferable sport. Uh, really. I see offensively and defensively. Um, I agree. The ability to uh, jab and, and refuse to pick the ability to carry a switch and then reattack when the guy recovers the ability to, step out and hit a slip or hit a roll or hit a pop um, and, and all the amount of different things that happen in a basketball possession, um, which you get in box across too, um, which is really similar to just all the different situations and things that happen within the course of a possession. Um, the guys that have that background tend to understand that more that, Hey, if, if I see a pick coming, I'm not going to stand still, or I'm not going to run in that direction. I'm going to drag my guy a little bit away, or I'm going to dodge opposite and then split or roll back to, put me in a position to use it well and also put the picker in a position to set a useful pick. Um, same thing with approaching, actually setting a pick, staying behind a defender's head and hitted, um, swinging or wrapping to a defender's opposite hip and mm -hmm. understanding how to get the Dodger into a dangerous dodging area off yep. of your pick. So it's, it's, uh, I, I definitely agree all those things. And uh, a lot of them you can teach some of them. It's really helpful when you have a head start with the player's background for sure. Um, and that's something we, we definitely look for in recruiting too. No doubt. It's pretty interesting too, when you sort of add the uh, on-ball and the off-ball action, so much of what we all want to try to create is these advantages. And one of the easiest ways to beat somebody is off an approach. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the off-ball two-man and on-ball two-man coupled with ball movement can create really difficult approaches without having necessarily to beat anybody. So maybe – Maybe you don't get a great advantage off of your two-man game because they pushed over it and they read the coverage, but because on the backside they were sagging in and you sealed someone and you swung it over, now you've mm -hmm. got an approach situation, approach two-man game. Um, how much do you think about approaches and when you're trying to um, sort of orchestrate your offense through ball movement and, and swinging it? 
Yeah, um, quite a bit, quite a bit. And and a lot of that can happen through constant action and, and that off-ball action. You can create approaches just by being dangerous as a cutter, by cutting to or sealing and then moving. Um, uh, and you can also create approaches just by really just by dodging posture and, and swinging the ball. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I remember, uh, back in the years where they were winning like 15, 16 Denver, how they would have a three man weave action up top and, and all the goal of the first, really, it was kind of a pass and pick in a top corner of the box was to get the defense heavy to the side, have the opposite high defender sag into the box and then swing it across the field and create a long approach and attack that as the true initiation of the possession. Um, so we talk about things like that quite a bit. Um, we we talk about the concept of slamming, which we just call a pass pick. And if you're getting deep down the alley and you don't have a lane to the goal, pass the ball, ball forward, present yourself as an option in a two-man. And even if that attackman's not going to use it, if it looks like he's going to come off at hard and gain an advantage around the goal, swing the ball up top. And now we have an advantage up top because of how sloughed in the defense gets. Um, so, yeah, the more – the more you can start to bring those people to the ball without getting in the way of the ball. If you can kind of create a little diversion and then swing the ball quickly, uh, you give your, hopefully give your athletes a lot of space to do some work. Love it. Um, real quick. How about a little uh, defense and your philosophy there and your brothers? Uh, you said your brother and coach Klopstein are coaching the defense. They are, they are. And, uh, and they already, and that was, Really, for me, that was the biggest recruits of the year was getting uh, the rest of the staff completed. And, and I couldn't ask for uh, a better staff to to go at this challenge with. Um, they have an awesome working relationship already. Coach Klepstein, um is also comes from a coaching family. His family has a long history of Rutgers prep. His older brother, Ryan, was a coach at gosh, Carolina Bucknell, Holy Cross, and is now the head coach over there. Um, so and, and I actually coached Christian's brother, Reeves, at West Point, and he's one of, if not the smartest defensive minds as a player I've ever been around. Cool. Um, so they're kind of merging uh, all their ideas and um, and Kyle's background as a player at Duke, at Ohio State, um, Binghamton and, and Hobart and Christian at Bucknell and the tempo that they brought um, and that he brought to Dickinson and coming off of their, their most successful year in program history. Um, it's been cool to see. And, and I would say a lot of the a lot of the concepts we talk about on the offensive side of the ball are true defensively. We want to play faster in the fact that we want to look for areas where we can be aggressive and try to speed the offense up a little bit faster than they would like to go. Um, we're, we're, we're definitely a, again, a full field defending group. We're going to ride a little bit. Um, we're going to play kind of in that gray area. And I think we're, where they both do a really good job of is, um, yes, they have their base system, and here's the areas within the system when a Dodger's around the edge of the paint. Oh, this could be a really good area to potentially jump, um, crack a pick, jump a, a rollback, uh, and create a little bit of tempo. Um, yeah. And, and it's been really cool to see them start to build this together, uh, and they've been doing a great job. Love it. Yeah, it's pretty fun to pressure. I, I, I do believe that it 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 it's kind of scary to do, but uh... – but I, I do think it can get you over the hump as far as uh, winning those 50-50 ball games. Yeah, it's um you have to everybody has to be on the same page. That's what I'll say. And that's what they've Not been natural. No, that's what they've been incredibly great at teaching. And, and a lot of it is communication. 
And a lot of it is just an awareness um, and, and kind of instilling that in all the guys that if you're going to make an aggressive decision, as long as all the other guys in the field are, are in line and understand what that decision is, even if, if we screw it up or if they are able to get out of it and, and hit an open guy, we still have support and we still have the other guys in the field behind it um, so that, that we're all on the same page together. Yeah. It's pretty amazing too, what pressure does to people um, over the course of time, because once, once they start to decide they want to try to win the game, they're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Sometime towards the end of the third quarter, when you're down three goals, got to use human nature against them a little bit. No, yeah. I've been there. Me. The I've ball, been there. Then, they, then they will turn it over nonstop. Yeah, no. no. yeah, that's really cool. And um, are you guys uh, um, are you guys gonna play zone? Or are you mostly man? Or are you gonna be able to mix it up? How multiple will you be in the different coverages and schemes you'll use? I think it all it all depends on what we feel most comfortable with. Um, that's certainly that's one of the things we use this segment now in the post fall when we go back into eight hours. We talk a little bit more specialty, and uh, given everything was new, we had quite a bit to just install with our base systems um, throughout the fall. But uh, we'll I think we can be a pretty decent zone team. Um, I think we can do a couple different things in the ride here and there. Um, not that that's going to really define who we are, but just to give. Uh, and again, I think of this like basketball with the shot clock now, just to give a different look off an end line, off a shot out of bounds. You jump into zone periodically. You throw a couple possessions throughout the course of a game um, just to keep people off balance. Uh, and it may not be the right solution for every team and every game, but for for the teams that, that you need it for just to have it in your back pocket is important. Love it. All right, let's wrap it up with recruiting. Talk to us about uh, about St. John's and what what you're looking for and what people can expect. Uh, I think I think first and foremost, and and what I was so impressed when I came on my interview and um, and I was lucky enough to have a connection with Mike Craig, who's the athletic director, and Father Brian Shanley, who's the president, and everybody that I met along the way throughout the entire interview process. Uh, there's an incredible passion for the university uh, in the area, uh, in the athletic department and, and St. John's in, in our area in the tri-state is big time athletics. Um, you think basketball, you think soccer, you think baseball and um, and every sport here has had success at the highest level, has won Big East championships and been in the NCAA tournament, Elite Eight, Sweet 16, Final Fours. Um, so there's there's the excitement, I think, of playing big time athletics. Um with a really, really passionate group of people who really care about the university and, and care about you as a student athlete. So it's a really cool community to be a part of. And then, uh, and being in a, in a really nice campus and in a great area um, in uh, kind of right on the border of Fresh Meadows in Jamaica, where people think maybe St. John's is a quote unquote city school. Um, our campus is, is a gated campus and we have a residential community on every side of us. So there's a little bit of, a little bit of everything while still being, 10 miles from downtown Manhattan and being able to utilize all that affords. So uh, we were, we're excited with, with, I think all the, all the things that we have to sell to recruits for sure. Um, and listen, the prospect of playing big East athletics and big East lacrosse right now, you're going up against uh, right now, arguably one of the top five programs in the country year in, year out, a, a past national champion. And um, uh, there's, there's no slouches in the conference. That's for sure. Um, and being able to play some great competition just just by virtue of where we are. So we're excited and excited where we've been able to start recruiting and um, 
it's been a people first approach. It'll be people first, second, and third. Um, who comes through the door is is really more important than what type of player comes through the door, and uh, and we'll continue to recruit that way. You're gonna recruit. You're gonna try to get the best kids on Long Island, or uh, open it up to across nationally. Uh, gonna get some Canadians. So how do you how do you your ge- geographic uh, sort of distribution there? Yeah, we're gonna be a we're gonna be a little bit of a, a fifty different flavors. Um, our university, one of the best things about St. John's is the diversity of the the school and the student body. It reflects our area and. and New York City is a melting pot, and it's really cool just to walk around campus and see that. So we certainly want to be really strong in the tri-state and in Long Island and Fairfield County and Westchester and Jersey and Philly and recruit the guys that kind of know and, and understand what New York City is going to do for them long after their lacrosse career is over. Uh, but at the same time, we can we can recruit in Canada. We can recruit on the West Coast and, and in the South and in the Midwest uh, because of New York City and our proximity there. And um, and because we we get to tell them that they get to play in the Big East. Um, so we'll be we'll be a little bit of everywhere. And um, I'm lucky in that I got two great assistants that are tremendous recruiters and, and have connections all over the place. Um, so I'm uh, I'm excited where where we could go. How much do you look for uh, finished products versus athletes? Uh, I was a three sport guy and and give it the choice. I want the guy who's got an incredibly high motor, who is a little bit more unpolished, who we can turn into something who's got a higher upside. Um, Certainly you need guys that can score goals. You need guys that can keep them from going in your net. Um, But, but when in doubt, um, we want great athletes who more than anything, just, just have an internal level of competition and compete um, and, and absolutely love it. Um, they may have played hockey and football or basketball or all these sports growing up, but um, once they make that decision for a lacrosse, you know that they're going to put everything into it and that um, we, we try to develop players so that they're nowhere near who they are when they graduate as they're when they get here. What about, um, you talk a lot about decision-making so obviously you're looking for players that are smart players that can make great decisions that can perceive what's happening around them. Um, how do you recruit that? How do you judge that? There's nothing that I like to recruit more than a basketball point guard or a football quarterback or a guy. Uh, and, and it's partially that um, it's partially spending a lot of time, not just recruiting off of a couple games here and there. Um, it's spending a lot of time, watching uh, every guy that we recruit and it's uh and i think that that is kind of aided um in the multi-sport background and in seeing them and what position they play um in hockey and and talking to their coaches across every sport and not just asking um hey hey is he is he a hard worker um, is he a great teammate, which we certainly do. And that's really important to us, but Hey, what, what role does he play for your team? What role can you see him playing? Like, how is he developing? Um, and, and those questions I think go, go a long way in answering that too. It is, it is such an important part of the game to figure that out. And yeah. it's, it's really, it is hard to read it. And it is easier if, if kids are multi-sport athletes, but there's a lot of people now that, you know, can't be, you know, because you can't really play, you know, if you're a soccer player and a lacrosse player, they're going to make you make a choice there. Yeah. Unless you go to private school, you know, yeah. then, and you can kind of do that. Um, football, obviously, is something you can probably always do. But I'm not sure that the IQ piece, you know, not everybody gets to be the quarterback. So, yeah. 
it becomes it becomes kind of a little bit more challenging. You know, some guys are just pretty good at getting to the ball, but that may not translate defensively. And you just need really, really super smart players. It seems like you know, for 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 defensive guys, it's also hard to tell what they've been coached on versus what their instincts are telling them to do. And I think that's actually sometimes uh, club lacrosse. It's obviously very different from playing in the system, but you can see when they're when guys are in a little bit more of a free structure kind of what they do naturally um and and that that will say that's one of the hardest things to pick out and to see because it's it's definitely obvious who's bigger stronger faster who's got the best skills but um if you watch a half of a game do you really see what what they are naturally like and what they do instinctually over the course of 20 minutes um, right so it's it's due diligence and it's making sure you don't. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, exactly. A, it's a sample size issue that college coaches have. Yeah. And that's why for us, like the best thing we do um, our prospect days. I mean, when we get guys that come to prospect days and we get to coach them for a full day, we come away with such an amazing feeling on who they are as a player, who they are as a kid, being able to coach them. And I mean, I think we've at every stop I've been, we've pretty much taken at least a player off of a prospect day and pretty much everyone that we've run. Um, so there's, you got to find environments. Like I, I love when I'm coaching at an event, um, and getting to actually coach players and, um, run through drills or coach a team for a day. Uh, you get so much out of those things mm-hmm. and, and just finding out who they are and, and what they're like, um, throughout the day. Your prospect days, um, h- how do you ensure that you can uh, actually like, what kind of environments do you create? Um, at your prospect day to, to make sure you've got a great look. Um, how big is it? You know, how, how, you know, how much do you play? F- you know, obviously if you play full field, it's great, except for, you know, it's the best context ever, but it's, it's, you know, somebody might only get three dodges in the game. And yeah. How do you sort of make it balance? Well, I think the the size is definitely the, the biggest aspect in making sure you get what you want. Um, we believe in having a pretty intimate environment. Um, if you're, if you're really any larger than that 50, 60 number over the course of a day, it's really tough to number one, make sure you get the opportunity to coach every player that's there individually to the level that they deserve to be. But number two, throughout the course of, even if you're doing two on twos and four on fours and maybe some small sided unsettled work um, and some big, big field transition, and then some scrimmage play in the afternoon, it's tough to get a great evaluation on everybody. If there are too many guys there. So I think that's that's the biggest piece. And um, and when you're really using it for a recruiting purpose, it, it just it makes more sense for us to keep it on the smaller side, um, yeah. to really be able to engage with all the kids. Last question about the sample size. How do you go about seeing people enough? I mean, it, it, would you rather see everybody a little bit or a, a lot more of let fewer people? I think. Initially, you want to see everybody to get a lay of the land. But as we start to really dig into a class, it's finding out um, it's finding out the guys and really it's through conversation and the due diligence and the front end on our part, finding out the guys that, that we're interested in, that we think could have interested in us and spending a, a large majority of our time watching them, um, watching the right teams, watching the right um, players, uh, there, there definitely is. There's no way around it. There's, there's a lot of energy and time wasted for sure on the, in the recruiting at our level. Um, but through, through front end due diligence and, and a lot of legwork there, we can at least make sure we're being efficient um, and trying to watch, watch the right players for us. Yeah. 
I remember at Denver, I would do the same thing. I pretty much recruited Denver, Midwest, Canada, yeah. West, New England prep schools. Yeah. I remember, you know, Double D's like, Jamie, are you call him Matt Ward? I was like, no. He's not coming to Denver. And uh, But I remember just sort of following Team Texas around like at Champ Camp back in the day and like literally just watching the same guys over and over and over and over. And it was actually remarkable. When you watch enough, you start seeing things out of kids that you otherwise would not have seen. And it's yep. those nuances that um, are those, those interesting things that – are the things that will win you games later that, that yep. you just can't see um, on, on first blush. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, as much as I love watching all of the uh, quote unquote top 100 kids. Uh, yeah. Maybe there are a couple of those guys. Uh, we're going to get to St. John's. It makes sense. But uh, most of them, uh, I'm much better off spending my time on the guys that, um, that really matter for us. Yeah. Awesome. Hey coach, thanks so much for coming on. It was really uh, a pleasure to talk lacrosse with you. It's been too long and um, look forward to following up with you again sometime. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Jamie. And uh, when you're in the New York area, whether it's the RV or elsewhere or by plane this time, uh, let me know. We'd love to have you over. we Will do. Uh, good luck this fall and good luck this year. We'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie. Right. Thanks, Justin.